the idea that there's going to be demand for homes that are pricing out over $400,000, I don't care what the interest rate is. I'm, I'm telling you right now, I don't care. They cannot afford these homes plus the expenses that go along with them. And it's just like I think our media misunderstands who lives in this country. Yeah, the top 20% drive a lot of consumption, but there's a limit to how many houses they need. Thanks for joining us today on The Real Friends Podcast. On today's podcast, we have Melody Wright. On the podcast, we discuss the state of the residential real estate market, the crazy things going on in Florida, the affordable housing crisis. We try to see through some of the mirages and data to better forecast the real estate future. Melody, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Gordon, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So uh, what got you into real estate? <laughs> Um, well, you know, I, so I kind of fell into mortgage by accident, uh, which is where I started in mortgage, uh, mortgage finance. I took a random project analyst job in September of 2006 at uh, top five uh, subprime originator. I didn't know that at the time. <laughs> um, and just sort of, you know, we were owned by GMAC or GMAC, uh, you know, who was owned by GM at the time. And we essentially, I, I, you know, I started at the top and we had been purchased by a private equity group, Cerberus, who came in and just wanted to understand everything about the business. As the project analyst, I kind of became their sidekick in terms of going out across this massive business, which incorporated many different companies to help them understand what they had just purchased. Um, at the same time, the market was, sort of, uh, you know, coming to a, a, a real stop. And, uh, you know, we started doing write downs after write downs after write downs. And, and so everything kind of went crazy. And I got a crash course in mortgage, I learned a ton during that time, but I didn't eat sleep, <laughs> etc. You know, I lived at, at work really, uh, up until um, honestly, 2013, I, that's how long it took us to get through the crisis. And, and it ultimately for us ended up in our bankruptcy, which I helped to manage um, as well as I kind of, so I started out in corporate finance, found my way over helping to manage kind of the consent order, which is when the, you know, the banks and non-banks got in trouble for um, servicing practices, and then uh, the AG settlement and things like that, and then went off to help manage our default uh, operation because we were being threatened by the GSCs at that time that they would pull servicing, which would have tanked our auction, all kinds of complicated stuff. But essentially, you know, I have I got a real crash course at that organization in everything uh, mortgage finance, both origination and servicing, you know, the operation side of it, plus the finance side of it, which is very difficult for a lot of people don't really understand the secondary market and, and how that all works and how that drives housing. And I think, you know, it, I used to do training courses and I would, I'd say, unless you understand mortgage box securities, you do not understand, you know, mortgage finance or housing. And so, Anyway, after that, I went to a bunch of non-bank originator and servicers trying to help them get their operations in shape. Uh, once I sort of got frustrated with that, because technology was the answer and their technology is abysmal, 1968, 1972, <laughs> or when most of the uh, banks and non-banks use systems that old. I kind of went out to some fintech companies and tried to create solutions for the industry. And then, you know, I sort of, at, at those companies, just because of my background, I have a background in academia, they sort of came to me and said, hey, uh, you know, tell us when rates are going to rise. And so I did a deep dive um, and really for the past four years have just been studying macro as well as um, kind of the micro of the housing market and then went out on the road earlier this year uh, just because, you know, I had a thesis about inventory. Um, I believe that the shortage narrative was overblown. And so I went out on the road to see for myself. So that was a long answer. Uh, hope, hope that kind of gives you good background. Yeah. So um, I, I'm curious um, about, uh, you mentioned solutions to fix the industry. I know we want to talk about the market, 
but I'm curious, what do you think is wrong with the secondary lending industry as well as just the mortgage industry in general right now? Yeah. So to me, there's a lot of things that are wrong. Um, you know, I, I think people don't <laughs> understand that 95% of the mortgage market is, um, you know, backed by the government. Uh, I think the private market is, uh, the pri the official private market. Uh, I've been learning a lot about the private note market recently, but the uh, the official private market, uh, our non QM as we call it, is only about five percent, and that's drastically reduced from what it was prior to you know the GFC. So what's wrong? I mean, I, you know, I think that uh, the incentives are not aligned correctly. I think you know the government has made it such an unwieldy process. Um, it, the banks really got out of it. You know, the non-banks are sort of driving it. And, and you know, so I, I think that we've lost sight of, of, I don't know, how this really should operate orderly. And, and now it's just become another government program. I, I hate to put it that way, but that's really what mortgage is today. Look, I wouldn't completely disagree with you. Um, in terms of uh going in and going in something we might disagree a little bit on. Uh, I'm curious what you see the current state of the residential market is, be it multifamily, short-term um, uh, occupiers uh, purchasing. What are you seeing right now in America's housing market? Yeah, so it's a very confusing story right now. I, and I think that wherever you turn, you could find um, something to support your position. And what I try to do, honestly, I mean, honestly, is I try to look at all of it and, and you know, um, and, and I try to triangulate the data to understand what's going on. And I try to dig into each of the, the data series because let's take Kay Schiller, you know, everybody's in an uproar, Kay Schiller, um, you know, on the rise home prices, right? Well, that's just for existing. That's just for repeat sales. And the series that came out, uh, you know, this week is honestly for sales in, uh, you know, June, July, August that really got into that September uh, number. And so it's very lagging and it doesn't. And, and again, it doesn't even take into consideration the new homes, which we saw this month, new home, you know, medium price tank. And so you have this very disparate picture of what's going on. And so to me, um, you have to be really thinking about path versus prediction. And, and what I'm seeing, because I do still have uh, mortgage clients, is I'm seeing distress at the consumer. And, and what you hear out in the media is about aggregate delinquency and the fact that 90 plus is down. But in reality, um, the thirty, the reason the ninety plus is down is because of all the government programs were there, catching them in the COVID forbearance, catching them in the payment deferral or the partial claim, things like that. And, you know, uh, but the thirty to sixty is starting to tick up again. And in mortgage, we call when you cross that thirty plus, we call that the death cross because it means you're giving up on your credit reporting. Now, who? So what's happening with a the consumer there? It's a combination of people that can't afford their property taxes, which are increasing exponentially, um, you know, especially in places like Florida. And and, and, and and when I say California and Florida, people are like, oh, no, there's a cap. Well, yes, but this is about people that bought recently who are they, you know, they bought in 21 and 22. And that's not applicable because they there's this thing called, in California called supplemental taxes. The point is, you know expenses are rising exponentially and the consumer's coming under stress. At the same time, in my books, I can see the investor, the smaller investor coming under stress who had multiple properties, over leveraged, weren't prepared for the types of expenses, et cetera. So we're seeing that early stress in the consumer in the mortgage industry. And mainstream media is trying to kind of say, well, 90 plus is down. I don't care about 90 plus at all. I mean, we're going to have government programs that are going to help people, you know, with that delinquency. We just saw VA go on, you know, uh, a pause for foreclosure. Uh, I'm not really looking at mortgages where I see the biggest distress in the market. 
where I'm seeing it is actually in these all cash sales, um, which were people who, yes, of course, there were definitely people who bought with all cash without a doubt, but a lot of that was leveraged cash from like wealth management, you know, groups at PNC and places like that, or they refied out of a larger property, um, you know, through a DSCR loan or things like that. Um, and so it looks like it was purchased with all cash, but in reality, that's leveraged somewhere else. Um, and so I think that the investor participation kind of went wild. If you look down in Florida, somewhere like Lakewood Ranch, I mean, it, it is completely obvious to you, you know, Port Charlotte, Port St. Lucie, uh, you know, these places that have just become completely overbuilt because and built for speculation. So I think that um, the path that I see ahead, if nothing else happens, if we don't have a credit event, if um, you know we don't have enormous job loss, we will see material delinquency in mortgage probably around June. Um, you know, that's when I think people will stop arguing about whether or not there's issues in mortgage. Again, not my biggest you know concern. Um, but what I'm already seeing in Florida specifically is uh, you're seeing investors trying to offload properties and they're not able to. So I tweeted out something yesterday. You may have seen it. Um, it got a lot of I I kind of had no idea it would get this much. It, it kind of went viral. <laughs> and but it was just of one home in, in, in Fort Lauderdale that I had actually went to, um, you know, a, a few weeks ago. And this was a fix and flip. I mean, they they kind of covered over the garage, tried to make it a three bedroom. I mean, it was really poorly done and it, right next to a substation and they're trying to sell it, you know, for a crazy amount. And, you know, it, it recently they're starting to take the price down, take the price down, take the price down. Now, you know, I, I know other situations. So I, I study a lot of Florida because I think um, based on all my travels, uh, I thought Texas would sort of be the epicenter of what I'm seeing ahead, but I it's going to be Florida again. <laughs> it's always Florida. There's a great book, Bubble in the Sun, and another one called Swamp Peddlers that just really kind of can lay the groundwork for understanding Florida. Um, but essentially, you're seeing it, the inventory where, you know, I'm seeing inventory drop in certain places across the country. Florida is just there. It's starting to come on at an accelerated rate. And it's sitting on market. It's not going anywhere. And so you can, and I, and I talk to a lot of people because I get a lot of hate <laughs> as well, you know, and we, we, but we talk would, it out. Would, Go ahead. Yeah, no, I, I'm, I'm sure you do get a lot of hate. I, I got a lot of hate yesterday for a comment I made about the housing market and I'm much more agnostic on it than I think you are, uh, which I, so I can only imagine, um, <laughs> what you get in your DMs. Um, in, ter in, in terms of uh, going back to something, though, I wanted to double back. And, and one of the reasons why I think I'm more agnostic is I don't have the numbers in front of me. I see a lot of just really mixed data, and a lot of it seems to be very lagging. So, like, I, I know recently you were on the Hartman show, I think, and, and he's he's a bull, a housing bull. And so... Um, he, he's sitting there and he's using all these major government numbers that are put out and major corporate media numbers. And a lot of them show a pretty good housing market. But then you're seeing a lot of voices like yourself that are very knowledgeable in the market who are coming out with their own data pools that show a very different picture. And I'm curious, um, can you explain a little bit more about why you think data might be lagging so much? Um, that, that we're seeing right now, because I know as somebody who's not primarily invested in the residential space, that's a really small part of our portfolio, but it's still important for our investors to understand what's going on. Why do you think there's such a disparity? And um, can you go into that a little bit further? Absolutely. But let me just kick off with, I agree. it's important, I think, for your audience to hear about residential, because I do think they're inextricably linked, you know, and a lot of these new builds were built to support commercial projects, believe it or not, you know. So um, why? Okay, so back during 2006, 7, 8, 9, even 10, I can tell you, uh, you know, we had reason to be positive about the housing market based on the data that we were receiving, because it, it it's not 
that anyone's trying to uh, obfuscate. That's that's not what I'm saying. It's like you take the case Schiller again. You know, it's repeat cells. That's existing. That's a very limited population of what's going on. Um, also, it, it, a lot of the data that we look at is on surveys. And what we've seen absolutely since COVID is that there's a reduced participation in surveys. So you have uh, one of the reasons I started doing what I was doing, which is tracking stuff weekly, is because I remember being fooled, very fooled, you know, back in the day by the data that we were all seeing and by the leading economists. Like, you know, uh, I won't mention names, but every single one of them was very wrong, very wrong. They've been wrong this time as well, all the way through, you know, um, but people continue to listen to them. I don't understand that. But anyway, you know, but again, they're, they're, they're looking at this lag data, but it's also aggregate data. And what I can tell you absolutely about, you know, real estate housing is that um, the local component matters a lot. Now, it will become a national story, but it will start locally. And if you don't understand those local dynamics, those micro dynamics, you are going to be caught by surprise. So like yesterday, the Florida thing that really, you know, got me some hate just because everyone, so many people are invested in Florida, right? Um, but, it, and, and this guy was arguing with me about, you know, the price, you're the only one, Melody, that's seeing, well, I'm seeing reduced prices in Florida you know, um, and, and, and including existing and new together, because I'm using a different data series. It's not the only one I use. I use all of them to really understand what's going on. But it really has to do with the lag. It has to do with the idea that you can look at something in aggregate and understand what's about to happen. That's just not the way it works. And a lot of people look at MSAs. They don't even look at locals. I mean, can you imagine like the Atlanta, that area? I mean, that's about what, a hundred different markets, you know, that they're trying to, and so you can smooth that data series. That's not going to help your investor who's in Alpharetta, you know, with all this empty property, like commercial property or whatever. You, you, you know what I'm saying? That's just an example. I don't even know if that's true. I was there recently. It looked empty, whatever. <laughs> uh, so, you know, but that's, that's the, the part people always get surprised because they can't see the embers. They can't see the smoldering when you're looking at aggregate lagged data. And and that's a, and I can tell you the bulls are about to be there. You can already see it happening. They're, they're really shocked. They don't understand why inventory is growing right now. Well, meanwhile, this is exactly what I knew, you know, at the start of the year was going to happen based on the short-term rental craze which has not stopped no matter what, you know, what we know about kind of the, the increased expense, like the cap rates not making sense anymore. We still got people piling in at the end. It's the last people in the door and listings are still increasing for short-term rental in the 75 cities that I track. Even when we all understand those of us that understand cash flow, et cetera, that, you know, these markets are oversaturated. Um, you know, they're, they're not, they're maybe around 50% occupancy. So they're not cash flowing, but people are still piling in. So I, I just think that if you look at just one or two metrics on the housing market, which is what everyone does, which is what we did during the crisis, you are always going to be misled about what's going on. You have to also look at demographics, which is something all the housing bills are just ignoring. And the census just came out and said, by the way, you know, we had it wrong. Uh, you know, we have even lower estimates of population growth. And that was last week. And we had already seen, you know, yeah, yeah Harvard coming out saying we had pulled forward house, household formation and we were going to have reduced demand in the future. But all the housing bulls uh, ignored. They, they talk about supply. They don't really talk about demand. So, yeah, lagged surveys that don't get, I mean, it's a survey. <laughs> it, that just creates a very yep. muddy, muddy picture. Yeah. Look, the most, the most hate I've ever gotten in a DM um, series was about six months ago. 
I made a big statement on Twitter about how demographics are going to drastically potentially lower the real estate uh, valuations and expectations over the next 50 years. And you could not believe the number of people in markets like Texas, Florida, Arizona, just came into my DMs, just trashing me. Um, And um, uh, look, like we, we try long term to provide. <laughs> well, I have so many good ones, though, too. I mean, I mean, truth, truthfully, I've had some of the most prolific, great conversations with people who are yeah. not, uh, you know, I'm not going to name um, in my DMs as well. So I'm, I'm never going to turn them off. I'm just going to you know, try to have some peace and some grace. Um, in terms of um, going through and understanding, though, about some of those markets, I, I wanted to dive in um, to uh, you mentioned Florida in particular. And uh, I, like Florida is definitely a polarizing topic. Uh, it doesn't matter where you are on the political spectrum, the ideological spectrum, um, uh, if you have investments there or you don't. Uh, what's going on in the Florida market right now? It's just what's gone on since the 1800s. You know, it's just speculation abounds. <laughs> like there have been so many cycles. What was so amazing, because so something I didn't go into, you know, I helped manage default in, in 2012, 2013, spent most of the time down in Florida doing that. And so you would not believe my shock when I went to some of the areas which were most impacted by the GFC to see that they were doing it again. I just could not believe it. Lakewood Ranch, and I, I will get some hay for this, I'm telling you right now, but you know, a lot of the residents, and my last Lakewood Ranch post, um, I got a lot of people saying, you know, we overpaid, blah, blah, blah. But the amount of speculation there is just unbelievable. I mean, I, I can't even explain it. And they're just building, 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 building. And they're not looking around to see, does this make sense? And, and, the, and the big thing is, is you have, you know, I'm a big fan of Ivy Zellman. She has this great survey of builders. You know, she called the housing tops both times. She called the crash last time. She used to be known as Poison Ivy, um, you know, but I think this time she's starting to get more bearish. I mean, she was very bearish for a bit. She's kind of said, you know, it's not going to be as bad, blah, blah, blah. But she's starting to get closer to where I am because, but the reason why she's been a little confused is she only tracks the national builders plus a very small amount of not national local builders. What, when you go on the road, what you can see is that in every one of these mega sites with the nationals, um, the smaller builders kind of glam on. And so uh, no one really realizes, even if you're a national, if you take a left uh, from your subdivision and just go a few blocks and another left, you've got three more that are being, uh, that have sprung up because city planners have disappeared. They've just disappeared. Are there, and this is going to sound, are there in on sort of, <laughs> <laughs> you know, th this is a lot of money coming into their location and they've kind of like, okay, surely it's going to work out, but it's not. And so it, it's just rampant speculation. Everyone thought that either they could build a home that, you know, one of the biggest things in kind of central Florida are the built for rent. The And so everyone kind of got in like multi-level marketing you know, they, they say, hey, I want to buy one of these properties that I can rent out and get passive income. And so whole subdivisions are springing up of this built for rent. Um, meanwhile, though, there's plenty of multifamily at the same time, brand new multifamily. You know, we're building multifamily the highest since the 70s. And so you've got all of this. You've got to look at all the housing stock together. But most of this has been driven by pure speculation and not anything to do with really, you know, kind of meeting the housing needs out there. Because when you also go out on the road and see what these things are listed for, no one in those areas can afford them, nor can people on a fixed income, which is, you know, who is largely drawn to Florida. So let's go into the data here, if, if we can. Um, in, a, in an example in Florida, um, 
is the disparity primarily in uh, understanding local builders versus national builders, just the data doesn't exist? And, and if so, what data do you have to indicate that there's as wide a gap or is it predominantly, you know, on the ground knowledge? It's a combination. You can, so, you know, you can look at the permits and you can see that, you know, there was, there's been a ton of permits pulled to do this work. The problem though, is that the permits are also a survey of construction. Um, And so I think that, you know, they don't, and we had delays during COVID. Well, firstly, let me tell you, you know, there's 3000, over 3000 counties in this country, and they have technology like that we were all yeah. playing on in the 1970s. And, you know, they 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 still use pencils and fax machines. And, and it's not every county, but it's a lot of them. And so then they were the places that shut down during COVID as well. And so you could have a, re- a permit delayed in recording somewhere like Los An- Angeles for months. And, and so I think there is a confusing picture of how many permits were actually pulled and for what, you know, um, as well as on top of that picture, you have you have actors, investors coming in like American Homes for Rent, who built all this built for rent. And so that didn't show up, for instance, as single family residential. But then when they couldn't rent it, they sold those all as, you know, single family homes. And so there's all kinds of noise in that data. Um, and again, I'll go back to it's a survey. We've seen reduced participation. But then the reason why it, I, I, I had to get on the road is because the data didn't make sense. And until you stand in one of these mega sites, um, you cannot get it at scale. And the thing is, is you can, what happens is a lot of people think it's just that one location. But the problem is I've now been all across the country and it's everywhere, not at the same scale. Like let's take somewhere like Pittsburgh or Johnson city, where I am right now in Tennessee. It's not like Denver, which is just one big new build site for multifamily and single family. Like I, and some commercial when the tech center is almost empty, you know, but here in Johnson city, there's probably about nine or 10 of these developments of about 30 homes uh, that are never going to sell at the prices they think upward of 500,000. I think the median income here is $45,000 household income, and they're just sitting on market. And most of them aren't even listed. Most of them aren't, you know, you'll go to a subdivision. It's one listed. There's 30 other homes. Because if you got no interest in that one, <laughs> why are you going to make it look like there's there's more? So it has to be a combination of looking at the data. And, and the data even in Florida and Texas tells you that there have been way more permits than what's needed for actual, you know, household, the households out there in terms of, you know, be it multifamily or single family, you know, residential. So, you know, I. It, it's a confusing picture, but you have to look at it all together. And what I would say to people that don't believe me is like, just get in your car, pull up the Pulte map. Usually there's one in your city and Pulte New Homes, your city. Just go drive that. And what you'll see is you'll see that all the builders kind of go to the same areas. And then uh, the local builders also are there. And so, um, you know, I think a lot of this is just about when we drive to work, we drive the same drive. We don't really look around us. If we drive just a little bit different uh, route to work, I think people are going to see what I've been seeing out there. If somebody wanted to go and dig into data, do you have data on your Substack or that folks can look at uh, to kind of get a better idea of what's going on? Just because, our, look, our listeners are very educated as a group, and they always like to dive into things. Yeah. Um, I, I know, you know, we're, we're going to go back to our conversation, but is there a good place on your Substack or, or somewhere on your website that they can check out some of this data? Absolutely. So I'm hoping to publish today, Gordon, today or tomorrow, my monthly summary. And in my monthly summary, I have 75 cities, and I, I put in there, you know, listings for rent, um, listings for sale, listings for short-term rental, you know, median home prices, um, you know, the change in homes sold, et cetera, uh, for all those 75 cities. And so there's a ton of data. And then every week I kind of publish, 
because I track this weekly. Um, you know, every week I publish the updates for those 75 cities for the listings for sale, rent, and short-term rental, because I think that's what most people, the housing bulls out there, they look at these markets very differently, the rental market versus the first sale market. And when rent is now, when it's now cheaper to rent in most cities across the country than it is to buy a home, and that has flipped on its head, then you have to understand that the multifamily and the built for rent are going to be competition for your existing and new home sale market. And that's what a lot of people are missing. So absolutely, they can come to my Substack, they can dig into the data. And honestly, if they leave me a comment um, on my Substack, I, I'm happy to talk to them about the data too, as well in specific areas. And a lot of my Substacks do dive into specific locations. Um, that's how it kind of started. My first post on Substack was when I got back from Phoenix and Las Vegas. Um, so, you know, I, I also do deep dives into particular cities and, and can also, you know, uh, help people if they want to do the same thing in their city, kind of give them some advice on how to get that data. Um, as well as I track the permits and things like that in the background. I, there's a couple of great, um, you know, great stacks on actual permit data across and some visual maps of where all these permits have been filed, et cetera. So yeah, highly recommend for the data geeks because I am a data geek. I want as much data as I can get. Um, I, I'm a total geek in that way too. And and honestly, that that's what I do. I just watch the data. I don't, I'm not trying to superimpose my feelings onto the data. I'm just watching what I think is about to unfold, you know, a lot of which is based on my knowledge of the mortgage market, but also just what I've seen on the road. Look, that's a lot of what we do here as well. We're just trying to help investors make good decisions. And um, uh, one of the things that I'm curious about is trying to figure out why we have such contrasting stories, right? We have this whole idea that from your perspective that we're about to see a, a major correction potentially. And then we have the main media narrative is all, there's a housing crisis, there's a housing crisis, there's a housing crisis. We need more building, right? So why is there that gap? Um, because for a lot of people listening, they're probably sitting there and saying, you know, why are there two completely different narratives going on right now? Well, I think you just said it, narratives, right? They're narratives. They're narratives. They're driving a certain view. And we have to understand. And, you know, I'm not trying to be conspiracy theorist. I, I just want to educate people. But Realtor.com is owned by the same folks as the Wall Street Journal. You know, like every single one of Zillow and Redfin are out there selling, you know, like it, you you have to understand there's vested interest, but if we just take it back to Upton Sinclair, right? You know, it, a man's going to believe something when his paycheck depends on it. And so I don't even, you know, I, I, I don't have any judgment, honestly, I just I just want everyone to actually have all the facts to make a decision. But I think that a lot of it is narrative. Like you take, for instance, what happened this year with uh, kind of everybody was surprised by new home sales. I, you know, I honestly, I was not. I'd written an article um, because they came in and they did incentives that basically affected a 15 to 25% net reduction in the price. Um, but how did they do that? Well, the media kind of went out full court press saying, hey, everybody, you can get this new build for cheap. You know, I was very nervous after seeing all these empty subdivisions in places in like Round Rock, Texas, et cetera, that some young couple was going to end up in a subdivision and they'd be the only house there, our only occupied house, because I had seen fully complete subdivisions all over the country not occupied, which are a security risk, you know? So I just had nightmares about this. So tried to tweet like, hey, just think about these things. I'm not saying don't do it. Just think about these things. But the the Bloomberg and everybody was just like, go out and buy these things. And, and you could see it as the stock market was kind of, you know, doing better new home sales kind of tracked right along with that. And and so I, I, I think that the same fundamentals were there. It, it The prices were unaffordable, 
But the builders were, you know, definitely had to figure out a way to move this inventory. You know, they, they're just like, you know, retail, they like a store, they have to move their inventory. And so what do you do when you have to move your inventory? You cut the price. And but then on what I've learned is that when they put those sales in MLS, they don't have to put all the concessions. And so it looks like the prices they got were much higher, which then sustained everyone's belief that these prices were higher, even though people were getting these concessions. And so, you know, I think it's just, there's a narrative that wants to support what they hope to be true, just like the soft landing. And again, like you, I'm here to educate. I'm not here to predict. Like, and But I can tell you that what I'm seeing in sort of escrow notices that are going out, doubling payments, and, and, and you know, insurance in Florida was four times the national average before even what's recently happened, you know, and you have 1.8 million on the government insurance down there. Like, the... It, expenses are about to drive a lot of people out of the housing market. And for whatever reason, I think maybe, you know, the top 20%, it's an echo chamber and, and they don't understand, you know, they, they don't experience life that way. They talk to, you know, their, their friends are mostly doing okay. Although even when you talk to them, the super prime are starting to come under stress. Many of them have taken on way too much leverage house poor in these mansions, you know, um, and they, it's just, it's kind of crazy. But I think when 57% of Americans can't afford a $1,000, you know, dollar emergency, the idea that there's going to be demand for homes that are pricing out over $400,000, I don't care what the interest rate is. I'm, I'm telling you right now, I don't care. They cannot afford these homes plus the expenses that go along with them. And it's just like, I think our media misunderstands who lives in this country. Yeah, the top 20% drive a lot of consumption, but there's a limit to how many houses they need. And it, and, and by the way, they're not going to buy a hundred when there's nobody, like a hundred to rent them out when there's nobody that can afford that rent. And they need that rent because they just paid that much for them. So if they want cash flow, they're going to have to get a certain amount of rent. They're not all like super, super rich, right? They're trying to make money. And so I think everyone's misunderstanding the demand. The fact that all those homes that are being built, you know, that was a they're very expensive to build or were very expensive to build during COVID because of labor and and cost of materials. And so I'm I'm not saying the builders are actually trying to scam anybody. I mean, those things were really expensive to build. The unfortunate thing is there's just not enough people to afford them. Hope that helps. Well, I'm going to play devil's advocate really quickly before we move on to our, our next subject. And there's certainly some uh, investors that we've worked with that have a little bit more of a tinfoil hat. And some of them uh, firmly believe that between 2021 and now, there are a lot of builders, particularly in like 2021, 2022, that were selling a particular narrative with the intention of offloading product that they knew might be um, less than advantageous to hold. Do you think there's some truth to that potentially, um, even if it wasn't done consciously? Uh, because it seems like from the data I've seen, there's a large percentage of folks that um, were in the national large you know, REITs, large housing groups that offloaded a tremendous amount of product in 2021 to 2022 to much more mom and pop shops. Do you think there's some validity to that conspiracy, just even if it was done not consciously? Or uh, am I just smoking something good? No, I listen, there's so much greed out there. I, I, I don't even, you know, I, there's this great article by Michael Pettis uh, from the Carnegie, Carnegie Endowment called The Bezel. And it just talks about how much of the bezel really participates in every one of these cycles. And so, you know, I, can, can, so for instance, the nationals, can they control what their local builders do? You know, can they control, you've got, so you think about it, you, oftentimes you go to these builder sites, you talk to people there, they know more about what's going on than the nationals. And, 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 you know, there, there was a great Twitter account, New Build Guru, um, 
earlier this year was like, you know, we are being forced to write contracts, um, you know, even though we know that they're never going to make underwriting because you can book it as a sale at that very initial contract, whether they go under underwriting. So was that happening? A hundred percent. Like there's no doubt people were pushing, pushing, pushing product, pushing the numbers. But usually that's because someone's told them, hey, you're not going to get your paycheck if you don't do X, Y, and Z. And so I wish that we were all, you know, super ethical actors, but in reality, most people are just trying to feed their family. And so, you know, and then there are the crop of just totally, you know, fraudulent actors. And so I think it's a combination of those two. And and I don't think that's tinfoil hat. I can tell you absolutely in February when I was in Austin and in, uh, you know, Charlotte, Nashville and all over Florida, they were they were pretending like those homes were occupied. They were doing things like pushing garbage cans down, you know, but but I was told by people in the industry how to tell the difference between what was truly sold, what was truly vacant. You know, there was always some kind of uh, indicator, be it a light was on or uh, the, the sticker that said sold was green versus a red sold sticker on another property. You know, so it's called salting the lots. And so everybody was salting the lots. And so you have to kind of ask yourself, is that an okay marketing technique? Is that, I mean, I, I, it's not one I would employ, but, <laughs> you know, I, we do a lot of stuff like that in every industry. So, but I do think there, there are a ton of bad actors and the fraud's just starting to show itself. Like, you know, people coming in and saying, Hey, do you want to get in on this new property? It's going to be units of $1.3 million and taking a hundred thousand dollars of people's money. There's a case I tweeted out two days ago in Davie, Florida, just like that. So there are a ton of bad actors and we're just starting to see those come out of the woodwork. So I think it's a combination of probably ineptitude, uh, you know, kind of a little creative marketing, and then you're bad actors, honestly. Yeah. Um, so in terms of going through, there's one more elephant in the room that I, I know we'd like to talk about. And that is the short-term rental world. Yeah. Um, I know you've talked at length on some of your Substack about short-term rentals. Um, that's probably the hottest, uh, how do I put it? The, the hottest touch point um, I when I, I engage with people who are kind of like the, yeah, yeah. The, the, some of the folks from like the bigger pockets gang. Um, and so I just wanted to see uh, what you see in terms of short, the short-term rental market right now in, in the United States. And if you could maybe give us a little forecast of what maybe potentially might happen over the next, let's say 36 months. Yeah. Yeah, I feel I, I feel for people that kind of fell for this hook, line and sinker because and I think there were a lot of reasons why people don't fully understand, um, you know, I'm going to quickly start with Airbnb and the fact that anytime you look up, a, you know, a city, they will only give you 300 results. Um, and it will also say in the top left hand corner, there's a thousand plus Airbnbs uh, in this city. Well, what they don't tell you is that there's 14,000 of those in Austin, um, for instance. And now what if you are one of those Airbnbs uh, owners in Austin and you don't realize that Airbnb is, is not going to, you're never going to get up to the top, no matter how you set your filters, no matter what you do, there's a real possibility. Nobody's ever going to see your listing. And they and they aren't going to tell you how many Airbnbs are in Austin. You would have to, you know, sign up with a service like AirDNA or Mash Advisor to understand that yourself. Um, well, and those take the rosiest picture. You know, I don't want to out anybody in particular, but let's just say they they take the averages. They don't use real time data, and it's a month delayed, and the comps are completely off. Like so, for instance, in one of my substacks, I take a property in Kyle, Texas. It was one that was actually in one of my clients' portfolios. I looked it up in one of these. Uh, I have paid subscriptions. It told me I was going to have a $600 um, average daily rate, and it would be occupied over 60% of the time. Uh, okay, this is Kyle, Texas, 22 miles south of Austin. 
I can get a $600 right downtown Airbnb. I'm certainly not going to pay it. And this thing, this thing was just a spec home. It was just a modular spec home, nothing fancy, nothing great. And, and so I'm a lender. How do I underwrite for air uh, for, you know, short-term rental? Well, I use some of these programs to do my comps. Okay, so then what happens? <laughs> You're making loans on completely failed comps. And so what, you know, the biggest problem that I see is the oversaturation, the complete mania. You know, I, I've, I've got Twitter spaces out there where talking about homes going on Facebook and under uh, going like getting sold and under an hour on, in, on Facebook. I mean, just pure mania. And, you know, most of the people I brought people on that got out in 21, 22 could see what was happening, but most people can't because they don't have time to really look into this. You know, they get a pamphlet that says all the right things. And it says, this can be yours for blah, blah, blah. And if you go to XYZ lender, all you have to do is put down 10,000. And then that lender is going to say to you, Hey, by the way, you really should get multiple properties, not just one. Because it's just better uh, and, and use that leverage. And so what you've got is a real mania mess where people thought that, you know, because think about a long-term rental. Maybe you make 2000 a month. Well, they were telling people, hey, instead of 2000 you can make 10000 But if you go to somewhere like Asheville today, Asheville, North Carolina, there are three to three listings for every one listing for sale for Airbnb. So three Airbnb listings for every one uh, listing for sale. These markets are completely saturated and they've kind of transitioned to everybody has decided to be a short-term rental landlord taking off housing inventory uh, from the market. And there is just a limit to how much short-term rental you need in cities, um, especially since there are also hotels who are going to be competing against you because they they get it now. And, and all of them now have their own short-term rental businesses, um, but they understand what they're competing against now. They're, they're out there lobbying, you know, because that's the other headwind that, uh, you know, is all these regulations that are coming out like in Dallas and New York that are really going to put a crimp in, 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 in these markets. And it's happening everywhere because people are mad. They're mad because a lot of these short-term rental operators didn't do a good job managing uh, these properties and they were in residential neighborhoods and nobody wants their kids waking up to, you know, beer bottles in the yard. <laughs> like that's just not, so there's a lot of zoning, there's all taxing, you know, so the headwinds in this market are absolutely unbelievable. And I think that people just got in, you know, because they believe the hype and they also believed the providers in this space. And and though they have not, in my opinion, been good actors at all. So it's not looking good and <laughs> at all. That property that I was tweeted out yesterday in Florida that I had been to, you know, he they bought that for short-term rental. No, no that that thing is miles from the beach, five miles from the beach. Nobody's going to give him, give them the money that they, that he, they need to, to cash flow that property. It's just not going to happen, which is why he's selling it. And, and it says, you know, short-term rental ready or whatever. <laughs> and a lot of, actually I have a colleague in Nashville, uh, sent me a note. He did, he scraped the MLS data in Nashville and, um, I don't have the exact numbers, but the percentage of homes that are making it to the market that were short-term rentals outweighs everything else. And I hope to share that soon, the actual numbers in my Substack, because it would be the first case study of something that I knew was going to happen, which was uh, we, were, we were going to have uh, short-term rentals come to uh, listings for sale at an accelerated pace once everyone sort of realized that they weren't going to be able to cash flow the way that they had hoped. So it's not looking good, Gordon. There's a ton of headwinds. Now, could you be successful in this? Absolutely. But it takes a lot of work, you know, and, and there will always, I think, be a short-term rental market, but you have to actively manage. There's no such thing as passive uh, investment in, in housing, in my opinion. I mean, look, I, I have some friends who have done it very successfully 
Um, they're very active managers and they're in, you know, prime markets, places like downtown Miami, places like Milwaukee, all by the breweries where you sit there and you say, yeah, that, that's probably going to work pretty well. You're just essentially operating a, a more diversified hotel lineup right. versus there's definitely some people who came into markets like uh, Lake County, where I sit, um, who uh, were in a, uh, a mode where they were trying to create short-term rentals 30 miles from Chicago. And uh, I have a friend who exited the market in 2021 because people were buying his properties for short-term rentals. And he said, uh, we are selling tulips. Yeah. So um, <laughs> look, um, that. There are certainly um, never clear answers, but I think there's um, maybe the clearest answer of all is we might be in for a change in the next couple of months. So um, in terms of in terms of going, um, I, we've had a wonderful conversation thus far, and I wanted to see if we could move to our final four. Uh, it's a great opportunity to wrap things up, and it's a great opportunity to learn a little bit more about you. Sure. Uh, so where do you see the housing market going uh, over the next, you know, 10 years? Yeah. So if nothing changes, if we don't get a credit event, if we don't have additional, you know, kind of uh, job loss, I think that we are going to have a, a slow home price correction. So, you know, a lot of people think that I'm saying it's going to crash overnight. No, I think next year we could see something, you know, probably around a 5% uh, decline, but then 25 is, if nothing else happens, I think 25 is where the rubber really hits the road and we start seeing significant declines in house prices. Um, and I think, you know, then we have probably two to three more years of smaller declines um, uh, to, and we kind of revert back. I, you know, I see a, anywhere between a 30 to 40% correction in some markets, some won't, don't have that far to go. But I'm, you know, my biggest premise is looking at affordability. And, you know, I ask people, okay, you know, although we've seen wage growth, we certainly have not seen it outpace inflation. So what is going to happen uh, to make people be able to afford these prices and to even, you know, afford to live in these homes, uh, especially when you have the headwind of AI as well? Um, I think it'll probably take a little longer than most uh, think for AI to really come in and take jobs just because I've been in technology and I know how long it takes humans to actually get their stuff together. Um, so, you know, I think it will correct. But housing is not a casino, you know, and, 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 and it, it truly is about shelter. And now I do believe you can invest in it. I'm not saying that, but it's not going, it's not, as we've talked about here, it's, it's not passive. It takes active management. And a lot of people are realizing they don't want to be landlords. And this is very similar to the setup of the Great Depression. Everybody became a landlord back then as well. There's a great book by Amity Schles, you know, called The Forgotten Man. And it's all about that time. And, you know, it was always the regular worker that kind of got the short end of the stick because um, they were just trying to work and, and do good and, and save a little bit of money, you know, uh, while everybody else went out there speculating, et cetera. So I, I do think that it'll correct. And then God only knows we may see another run up <laughs> and another, you know, cycle like this, especially those that argue we have structural inflation you know, they definitely see uh, hard assets increasing in price. Um, I, I just, I want to see what's going, uh, how are, who, who's going to be able to afford a $500,000 home on UBI? Like, to, you know, that's what I, I want to, because a lot of people think that, you know, yeah. kind of where we're headed. So wh what sense does that make? And then, and then who gets to decide that? Like who gets to decide who, who gets to live in what house? I mean, that's just a social nightmare. So you know, I, I think we'll correct. <laughs> I mean, it is. I mean, there's going to be yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah. some violence. I mean, that's going to be some violence, you know, so I think <laughs> we're going to correct. And I think then. Yeah. Know, who, who gets the uh, who gets the lake view? Right. 
who gets who gets the beach house you know <laughs> and and, yeah. and i think that people are asking that question right now the beach house that's that's government insured by citizens in florida you know like what like we're paying for them to live on the beach so anyway it's a social mess that we've got on our hands here so um you know i think we'll correct uh, I hope we don't have a, another crazy run up, but we probably will because this is the way economic, this, I mean, going back to the tulips, this is kind of the way that we always operate. So as humans, hopefully we'll learn or maybe AI will just come, you know, squash us and take over and they'll figure it all out. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Look, uh, Maybe it's our robot overlords. I wanted to touch on one thing uh, before we move into the next subject, though, um, is demographics. Yeah. Uh, if we could just briefly touch on that, because I know we mentioned it earlier, and I think that's probably the most perilous thing in the future. Maybe I'm I'm getting our robot overlords wrong, but um, I, I'm more worried about the, uh, the our graying overlords than I am necessarily uh, our robot overlords. Yeah, the demographics are abysmal, and and you know, and you, and you put on, and I honestly, I my theory is they're abysmal because of our economic situation. You know, I believe we haven't really recovered since two thousand seven. That we've been in what Emil Kalinowski calls the silent depression, and essentially, you know, we've seen so many people drop out of the labor force. Um, you know, we talk about low employment. Wait a minute, though. Let's look at how many people have dropped out, and then also let's look at what kind of employment they have in terms of you know they're working multiple jobs um, just to make the bills, and so we have a lot. I. I like 2 million men that aren't in the workforce, you know, like there's just some crazy stuff going on um, where people believe they cannot make a living. They cannot, you know, get ahead. They cannot buy into the American dream. And I think that couples are absolutely, you know, kind of looking around and saying, well, if I have a child, how am I going to support us? You know, we're barely making it. And so I think that a lot of the reason you've seen reduced demographics across the world, but here as well, is that, you know, it, it's just too expensive. They can't afford childcare. So we kind of, you know, in the, we kind of brought women into, you know, the workforce and that gave us a bump for a little while. But then as childcare became more expensive, you know, that that's not going to work out. Everybody's working, working, working so much. They're not having kids. And when you don't have increasing, you know, productivity fueled by labor participation, then your economy is in is in some deep trouble. And and so I I am very concerned about our demographics. I'm not as concerned about ours as I see across the world, but we've got a real problem on our hands. Uh and and I think, you know, people have gone from thinking there's too much population to, oh my gosh, <laughs> what are we going to do? Um, you know, so I, I, it's absolutely to me, um, if we want our economy to be robust, we're going to have to figure out how to get more people participating in the labor market. Look, I certainly could uh, go on a long diatribe on how much I hate Malthus. Um, and um, uh, I certainly wrote some serious uh, college and even a, a law school uh, policy paper on that. But um, in an, on a completely different note, um, let's take it to looking back to your childhood instead of um, maybe the absence of a lot of childhoods in America. Um, what would you say if you could go back in time to high school, uh, Melody, uh, and, and tell her a little bit more about you know, her future and, and what advice would you give? Don't take out student loans. <laughs> you know, be, be so I had I had no financial education. I grew up very poor. Uh we lost our home to foreclosure when I was 9. So we knew nothing about money. Uh the only thing I knew about money was write checks in red because if you write them in red ink, they take harder or longer time to process. That's what I learned when I was growing up. You know, so um, I would say go learn about, get a financial education, learn about money, learn about interest, learn about, you know, what debt can do to you, um, figure out what an amortization schedule is, you know, like, these are things you're never taught. And, and so 
you know, and they certainly did not teach you when you went in and, and as a, you know, 18 year old person who didn't have parents that were really participating, I signed all my papers. You know, I had no idea what I was doing, zero idea. And then I would also say, never believe the hype. You know, I went for my master's to one of the most expensive <laughs> schools in the United States. Uh, that was just a, I mean, it was a, I, I don't regret my education, but I could have gotten that education as they say in Goodwill Hunting at the public library. Like I didn't need to spend and this is probably going to sound low to people at the now, but I didn't need to spend $30,000 a year, you know, at NYU. So I think there's, but, but for someone like me, I believe the, the narrative of this was my path to achieve the American dream was to go to the right schools, get the right education. And what I soon learned is that really, it just, that didn't matter so much. Now it has gotten me things that I wouldn't. So I yeah, but go ahead. <laughs> yeah, so so I, I I think that gets us to probably our, our next topic. And um, one of the questions we like to ask is about other ways to get an education. And the way I love is I love books. Uh, I'll admit um, I'm a slow reader because I'm dyslexic. So I definitely do some audio books as well. But do you have any books you would recommend that might help educate folks on the state of the economy, real estate. Uh, you've already mentioned a couple, which are, are great, but um, is there anything that you would recommend that our folks pick up to either read or to listen? Yeah, so, I mean, there's a lot I would love to recommend, but I think the way I got started, I'll just, you know, uh, in, in this education recently, in the last four years, is I picked up Daniel Martino Boo's Fed Up. And I think... You know, reading Fed Up because she is an incredible writer. Her writing is just so, you know, clean and tight. Um, it changed my life, you know, I, and it, it sent me on a journey. And so it was the first thing to send me on that journey. So if, if people haven't read it, I would read that. And then I would say, you know, um, Bubble in the Sun. Uh, it's such a great book on Florida, but about, you know, and it argues that really it was the Florida land grab that really led us to the depression. And I would agree with that because, you know, 85% of global wealth is real estate. I mean, housing, all of this really drives the economy. So Bubble in the Sun teaches you that <clears throat> it's not different this time and that we, we sort of cycle around this. Our history of doom is another one that talks about all the ones all these different economic crises or panics in the history of humans that, and this has always happened and it's going to happen again. So just be on the right side of it, understand what's happening to be prepared. So I know that was a bunch versus one, but I'm a huge reader too, but I also look at the audio books too, Gordon. So <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Like I, I read, I just, uh, for me, I, I sit there and I think I read at probably one third the pace as a lot of folks. So uh, if I'm trying to get something quickly in my short time on this planet, um, sometimes audiobooks is a better option. They're so um, awesome. I wanted to touch on, <laughs> I wanted to touch on our last topic and it's the whole reason for the podcast. It's to go out and reach out and, and, and find interesting people that have interesting ideas and it tends to be men and women who are in the arena, who are, uh, you know, either just as, as you talked about it, going to talk to people who are maybe on that construction site or people who are doing those transactions or people who are talking and analyzing those transactions like you. Who's the next person we should get on the podcast? Ooh, okay, the next person you should get on the podcast, and I don't know who all you've had, um, but honestly, I, I would bring in, I, I think. Someone like, if you could, uh, this would be a big ask, but someone like Lacey Hunt or or someone like Daniel DiMartino Booth, you know, both who have a very good handle on the economy and all of the the forces uh, that impact it, because it's not just one thing. It you know, there's so many. It's such a huge ecosystem. But I think Lacey Hunt, uh, a macroeconomist, is is an amazing person to listen to in terms of his understanding of the cycles and understanding uh, as well how cars and housing really drive the economy. So, you know, I, that's a more kind of scholarly, but I think it would be, you know, interesting to the audience. 
Hey, I, I totally agree. Uh, I'd love to reach out to them and see if they'd hop on. I know we're going to have a couple economists um, in January come on and cool. kind of give forecasts. One even very long term, like thirty to fifty year uh, forecasts um, in terms of demographics and kind of what they see in terms of long term cycles. Yes. And so, um, thank you very much, Melody, for coming on. Um, there's one final question to ask, and that's simply. How does someone get in contact with you? What's the best way to reach out and where can they find you? Sure. Um, so, you know, I'm on Twitter at M3 underscore Melody and you can at me. And if you at me and say, hey, I have a question for you, I will reach out to you on, in DM. I, uh, so, Gordon, I just, the DMs I should offer, the ones that are, that are not, that just kind of cold come in just because they, it was really more overwhelming. Uh, but at, on Twitter at M3 underscore Melody, um, my Substack is M3 Melody uh, Substack. And then on YouTube uh, at M3 underscore Melody YouTube. And then of course on LinkedIn at Melody Wright. And, and so I would say the best way is typically on my Substack. I all, you know, I can always get to those comments. Um, it's, been a little bit of a challenge uh, just because uh, things have been happening quickly for me in terms of keeping up with YouTube comments, <laughs> et cetera. But at me on Twitter, if you at me, I will I will reach out to you. I typically read all those notifications. And if I don't get it the first time, you know, try again, because it's not because I'm ignoring you. It's either because I didn't see it or I'm just a little bit busy, but very open to talking and discussing. Uh, and typically I'll share my email once, you know, we get to a certain point as well. So. Melody, thank you so much for hopping on the podcast today. And uh, we'd love to have you on in the future. Thank you, Gordon. Thanks so much for having me. And I, it'd be a pleasure to come back. Thank you. Thanks again to Melody. If you enjoyed the podcast, please give us a like, a follow, a review. All your interactions matter and they help us get great guests. You can follow us on YouTube, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Gordon Lanfear with The Real Finds Podcast. Thank you for listening.